We come today to one of the core themes of all the Bible. Now, it's not just a central message in the Revelation itself. I'm talking about one of those themes that is so macro in nature. It is throughout the entire body of Scripture. And I'm talking about that cosmic conflict between God and his arch enemy, Satan or the devil. Now, you know, if you're a storyteller, perhaps a writer, perhaps you're a public speaker, you know how important it is when you're telling a story to build some tension, right? You know you need a protagonist and an antagonist, right? And because that tension, that sort of battle, that struggle kind of keeps people interested and hooked in. Well, guess what? That's one of the cool things about preaching the revelation. As a preacher, I don't have to create any tension by telling cool stories. It's all right here in the text. And here's the best thing of all. It's not fiction. What we're talking about is fact. We're talking about a struggle that has been going on for ages and ages. Now, I've shared with you many times that this series through Revelation is a bit like a tour of Europe. Uh, It's like one of those tours where you sign up and you cover eight countries in ten days and the tour bus is moving fast. I've also shared with you that perhaps one day, who knows, we may return to this book slow it down, stop and linger, and as I've been saying, sip the cappuccino. But not on this tour. The tour bus is moving fast, and I tell you that because it will never be more obvious than today when we literally cover seven chapters in one message. Obviously, we can't dip into all of them and carefully cover them. But we must keep the big picture in mind. So if you have your Bibles, find Revelation chapter 12, where in just a moment we'll dive in there at verse 1. I just want to make a little plug for the next two weekends. We literally have two more messages after today in the Revelation. I'm going to deal with chapters 19 and 20. Those are critical chapters next weekend. And then we're going to wrap it up the first weekend in December as we talk about heaven, chapters 21 and 22. But I want to warn you today, before we dive into the text, if this were a TV show, some of you would want to turn the channel because you'd go, I just want to believe that everything is happy and good in the world. I'm telling you today, I'm warning you, It's not all happy and good. We can pretend like everything is okay in the universe, but today's passage reminds us that not all is well on planet Earth. I like the way A.W. Tozer put it. He said, this world is not a playground, it's a battleground, and we're not here to frolic, we're here to fight. Today's message is all about that. There's so much at stake, brothers and sisters, in this great battle of which we're a part. And I just want to pause here before we jump in and make sure that you get the gravity of that. Because until you realize that life is war, 
you will not know what prayer is for. Until you realize that life is war, you will not understand while faithfulness in the Christian life matters so much. And until you realize that life is war, you'll probably be consumed with comfort more than with the commitment that God is calling every one of us to. So let's start by getting a glimpse of this cosmic battle in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, fought back, but he was not strong enough And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient beast called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. What in the world is that all about? That's the cosmic battle. And if you were writing a line over this whole section, I'm going to give it to you now so you can play with your iPhone the rest of the time if you choose. Not really. You don't want to do that. The title would be, The Dragon is Defeated. That's why I entitled this message, that very title, The Dragon is Defeated. I want to give you that theme from the beginning. We see that three times right here in this passage. This dragon failed to devour Jesus. He failed to defeat Michael and his angels, and he failed to destroy the woman. So he's defeated, and then he's defeated, and then he's defeated all over again a third time. That's Satan's story. Satan is a loser. But here's what you need to know about this dragon that this text is called, uh, this Satan or the devil that this text is calling the dragon. What you need to know is not only he's a loser, but he is a sore loser. Skip down with me to verse 12. And I want you to see what he is about because of his defeat. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, But woe to the earth and the sea. Catch this part now. Because the devil has gone down to you. 
He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So what's he doing? Because he knows his time is short. He doesn't have much time. He's going to make war on this woman's offspring, her children. Now, who are they? Who are, this, who are the children of this woman? Verse 17 tells us, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Catch this part. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now that's not good. Because that's us, right? If you're here today and you say, look, that's what I'm all about. I want to obey God's commandments. I want to hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's who I am. I'm his follower. I'm a disciple. This says you're in the story. Now I want to pause there just a moment. Because this changes everything, friends, when you realize that you're in the story. Imagine it with me like this. There are fires going on in California. You know, wildfires blazing out of control, just raging across the, the land. And a couple of your neighbors come and say, you know, you might ought to think of evacuating. Most of us are getting out of here. And then a state official comes by and says, you need to evacuate. But you just poo-poo it all. You go, no, nah, what are the chances really I just, I'm not, these things don't scare me. And suddenly, as you're sitting there watching the fires on TV, you suddenly see your house on TV. And suddenly, to your horror, you're watching yourself watch yourself on TV. And you get it, finally. I'm a part of this story. It's time to get up. This is urgent. It's time to do something. Well, that's kind of what is going on here when you have an aha moment. And I hope everyone listening to me today has one of these aha moments. If you've not realized that life is war, if you've not realized yet that we're not here to frolic primarily, but to fight. And I'm not talking about life not having any fun. You can have fun even in the midst of war, right? But we're here to fight, not to frolic. If you've not had that aha moment, I hope today will be that day. Because here's what happens. When you have that moment, when you realize, whoa, I'm in this story. It takes it from being just a nice little historical lesson with a lot of mysterious creatures and something that was for Christians long ago or maybe some Christians in the future it takes it from theory to being very, very, very personal. And you realize, wow, I'm being hunted by a dragon here. This is serious. The stakes are high. He's trying to take me down. Jesus said about him, he's a thief. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And when you realize that, it changes. Here's another thing it changes. It changes your attitude toward your fellow believers who are on the journey with you. Here's why. Because that guy across the aisle that may rub you the wrong way, you may not be crazy about that person. Guess what? He's being hunted by the dragon too. Are you with me? We're all in this together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ who have a common enemy. We're all fighting for the same cause. We're all in the story. 
Now, hope you got that. If you don't get that, you've missed everything. That's what this whole section is about. Now, here's a couple of things that I hope will be encouraging to you about this battle that you're in, that you're a part of. This enemy, the dragon, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent. That's good news. That means his power is limited, okay? We're on God's team. He is all those things. Satan is not. That means we've got an awesome advantage here. So what does Satan try to do? Since he's not omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, he leverages his power. What do you mean, pastor? He works through politics. He works through policies. He works through people of influence. He works through societal structures to try to bring about his devastation and take down as many people as possible. So that's what he tries to do, and that's what this section shows us. So in your notes is a section that says the beast of political deception. Let's talk about that for just a while because here in Revelation 13, he introduces us to a couple of beasts that the whole world is giving allegiance to. And then verse 4 reads, men worship the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. They also worship the beast and ask, who's like the beast? Who can make war against him. Now, these references to beast here, I would suggest to you, and of course, this is one of those provocative chapters in the whole book that there's so much controversy around, but I would suggest that these two beasts represent kind of two things from a Christian's perspective that the Roman emperor and the Roman empire were known for. Here are the two things. They were known for persecution of Christians, and they were known for false religion. I'm talking from a Christian's perspective now. That's what the Roman Empire was known for. By the way, as I've mentioned to you in the past few weeks, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who are still suffering greatly, and often their suffering is coming directly from You guessed it, government officials, people in power, literal political policies that are set against them. Now, you may ask a question, Pastor, I'm not sure I get this. You're scratching your head. Why would the dragon use governments to persecute Christians around the world? Why? It's happening. Go to North Korea if you doubt it. Go to a number of countries in the Middle East, if you doubt it. Go to certain countries in Africa, if you doubt it. There's literally, literal intentional policies designed to oppress and eliminate Christians. Why? It's ultimately about forcing people to put their hope in something other than God. It's ultimately about trying to get people to believe that God can't save you here. He doesn't have your back, but the government can save you. It kind of all comes down to where we put our trust. Who are we worshiping? It says that twice here in verse 4, by the way. 
That's the word used. They worship the dragon, and then it says they worship the beast. So this dragon is consumed as he leverages his power to try to get people, whether you're talking about ancient Rome or whether you're talking about Syria today, he's trying to use persecution to force Christians to shift their worship and their allegiance off of God and onto someone else. That's the dragon's goal, to steal the glory of God and the worship that is due him. That's the goal. Now, by the way, let me just make a little footnote here as we quickly move on. Don't you think that Satan would be just as satisfied to be in a country where people worship the government, where he doesn't even have to bring persecution at all? You bet he would. So let me make a little footnote here. I'm just passing by real quick. Just want to let everybody know, I am a patriot. Hope, did everybody hear that? Nod your head if you heard me. I see heads nodding. Thank you. Many of you are patriots. I know that. I've had some of you come to me and go, I'm a red-blooded patriot, pastor. Well, I am too. But sometimes I'll add, when people talk about how they love their country, which I love, I say, I'm not a red-blooded patriot. I, my blood runs red, white, and blue, man. I'm more patriotic than you are. I love my country. Are you still listening? But don't you worship the country. The forefathers of America did not die on a cross for you. Are you listening to me? The Constitution of the United States is not your spiritual Magna Carta of freedom. The New Testament is. Christians worry me sometimes when they talk about their country. And it seems to me that they're almost worshiping their country more than they are the Savior who died on the cross for them. And if that's you, Satan's got you right where he wants you. You don't need any persecution. He's already accomplished his goal. Everybody with me? Everybody still alive? I think the air just got sucked out of the room here for a moment. Hope you're all still alive out there, still got a pulse, okay? The Christians who first received this were a little marginalized minority. They had no vote. They had no bill of rights. They couldn't run for office. But Nero and Domitian and later Diocletian could not hold them back. Are you hearing me? The gates of hell could not prevail against them. Why? Because the dragon is no match for a church that's on mission. And that's why the government is not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. That's why we're so excited. That's why we're so passionate about the mission of the church. That's why we unapologetically call you to spread the kingdom of God and his values. Because the government is not the hope of the world. No political entity is the hope of the world. Last week, I mentioned five different approaches we can make to trying to share this good news with people who desperately need to know God. I, I mentioned things like the relational pr approach and the testimonial approach and the, the tangible, practical approach. I mentioned things like sharing in money, giving your resources to the kingdom. I applaud all of you who do those things regularly. That's what we're about because as a church... We're worshiping the lamb, not the dragon. So what are we saying? 
Let's get involved. Let's vote. Let's be aware of the issues. But at the end of the day, I just hope we all understand, if you're a part of Grace Fellowship, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, please understand that our hope is not in any election of any political candidate or in any political reform, as wonderful as that would be. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. We worship the lamb, not the dragon. All right? Now, there's a passage at the end of chapter 13 that is the most provocative single passage in the entire book. It gets more speculation than any other part. Let's look at it together. I'm talking about verses 16 through 18. I'm just going to pause there for a moment. Stop the tour bus for just a second. We're all going to pile off the bus, take a look at what this might mean. Then we're going to jump right back on. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. What in the world is that talking about? Does that mean that we're going to have MasterCard imprinted on our forehands or, uh, foreheads or on our hands? Many Christians believe that. I doubt if that's what this is talking about. He said, well, pastor, couldn't it be? Couldn't it, this be all about a cashless society? So that, it, I mean, after all, credit cards just bulk up our wallets, don't they? Let's just plant a chip on our hand or on our body somewhere. Let's just have a cashless society, right? Well, you don't have to wait for that. That's pretty much already here. We're already using chips beneath the skin for all kinds of recognition and tracking purposes and so on. So that technology, if, if that's where you think this is going, that's, that's already here. But I would suggest to you that there's an idea being given here, and the idea is about allegiance and ownership. Now, many scholars believe that this mark uh, traces back to an ancient practice in the first century where if you did not worship the emperor, you were not given an appropriate mark, and so therefore you could not buy and sell in the marketplace. So at Ephesus, for instance, if, if you didn't bow down and worship that 16-foot statue that's been unearthed by archaeologists of Domitian, largest statue found of him, by the way, if you did not bow down and worship that on a regular basis, receive the mark on your right hand or your forehead, hey, listen, you're out of luck. You can't even buy or sell. They're basically making life really tough on you. The problem with that theory is that we don't really have solid evidence that that ever occurred, the mark part. We do know that Christians were being pressured to worship the emperor. That's easy to see in many places, but we, we don't have any solid. Some scholars actually say it, but as I've traced it, I think they're just making it up, honestly. A number of the books in my library say, no, they put a... 
but you can't really get any solid evidence for that. So I don't know where the antecedent of that is. I think the meaning is a little different. So go with me here. Some of you may know that in the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin languages, there was no numerical system as we use numerical systems today. The alphabet was used interchangeably with the numerical system. For instance, take Roman numerals, which we still use today a good deal, right? And the V stands for five. The X stands for 10. L, 50. C, 100, and so on. We call that Roman numerals. And those numerals have a value. Did you know that the Greek language was the same way? Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, one, two, three, four. They each had a value. And so they were used interchangeably with numbers. The Hebrew language, the same way. Okay? Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, right on through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But the numbers weren't one, two, three, four. As early as the second century BC, the Jewish people had attached certain numeric values to the Hebrew alphabet. So you say, what in the world does that have to do with what this means? Well, it's interesting. People began to use names for numbers and numbers for names. It went back and forth. For instance, an archaeologist named Dysman has found an interesting scribbling on a wall in Pompeii. Got buried by the explosion of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. And a scribbling on the wall reads, I love her whose number is 545. That's like graffiti on a bathroom wall. He was giving her name in this numeric code language. And that whole study, that whole practice is called gematria. Gematria. You can look it up online and read all about it. So what does this 666 possibly mean? Well, here's one of the most common beliefs down through the ages. We put it on the screen here so you can see it. Many people believe this originally referred to Nero, the most sadistic, evil emperor of all the Caesars, Nero. If you take his name and transfer it into the Hebrew language, it would look something like this in the Hebrew language. So all that's fact, folks. That's what it would look like. And if you take the numeric values... That the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, had already ascribed to those numbers at least by 200 BC. Okay, so they're not just making them up afterward. Each of those letters had a corresponding number that all the people knew who learned it. They learned it from the time they were kids. These are what those numbers are. And if you do your math and add these up, guess what it equals? Well... It equals 666. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. But Nero wasn't the Roman emperor when this book was written. Well, some people believe he was because the date is disputed on when the book was written. But an emperor named Domitian was the emperor in the 90s. Nero persecuted Christians intensely in the 60s. Domitian was in the 90s. So what's going on here? How could it be referring to Nero? 
Well, there was a very common belief in the culture, this is easy to prove, that Nero, that everybody thought had killed himself, actually had escaped, and he was going to return. He was going to come back, either from the dead, be reincarnated, or he was going to come out of hiding, you know, and so everybody was looking for Nero, just like they were looking for Elvis, right, earlier in our country. And so it was believed that Domitian was sort of Nero reincarnated. So this is one possibility. It really is an unusual coincidence if that's not what it is. Many, many scholars believe that's what it is. But what I want to say to you is that you can do all kinds of clever things with these numbers if you just get creative enough. Someone discovered back in about 1941 when Hitler was rising to the peak of his power and the Nazi machine was really rolling, they discovered that if A equals 100 and B equals 101 and C equals 102, right on through the alphabet, guess what you get? Hitler equals 666. Now imagine, imagine now, this is, if, if you go with that system, A is 100, B is 101, C is 102, and you add the appropriate numbers to the letters of Hitler's name, Hitler equals 666. Now imagine getting that information in 1941. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that just electrify you? Okay, and so prophecy buffs were going crazy with this in the early 40s. I mean, it was being preached all over the land. Hitler's the Antichrist. He's been one of the prime candidates, you know, for this, what this 666 means. Well, th- this looks clever and everything. The only problem is whoever created this has to explain why they started their evaluation with 100 and not some other number. And they can't do it. And so it just becomes another math mystery, right? Just another math mystery that is really irrelevant to the discussion. So to move the bus, we're all going to get on back on the bus now. I'm going to tell you what I think it means as we continue to move. Here's what I think it means. Sticking with the apocalyptic genre... Sticking with what numbers meant, if you were asked, what's the number for God? You'd give the number seven, possibly three, spiritual number, seven, number of perfection, what God is in his essence, you'd say seven. And if you really wanted to give that to the max, you'd say seven, seven, seven. Well, guess what the number for man was? It was six. It was a number for evil, number for incompleteness, number for missing the mark. Okay, and if you put three sixes together, it's simply a spiritual exaltation of man, a symbolic way of saying this is the best man can do, but it is utterly inadequate. So what does 666 stand for? Complete incompleteness. Complete incompleteness. And the message here for us should be, man can do what he can do, but it's never enough. Humanism without God will never work. It's probably the general idea behind the 666. But believe me, the theories are many. Moving on quickly, we've seen the beast of political deception But I want you to quickly meet one of 
the dragon's favorite puppets, and that is the whore of cultural seduction. We're introduced to her in chapter 14, but again more completely in chapter 17. Verse 1 reads, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. Now, if any of you have an old King James version, it simply introduces her as the great whore. Now, I realize that that word makes us very uncomfortable, but I'm using it intentionally, yes, in church, because I want us to get the feel of what the writer's saying here. The word prostitute is okay, but it just cleans it up. It just sanitizes this idea a little too much, and that's exactly what the prostitute wants. She wants to seduce. She wants us to think she's safe when she's not safe. She wants us to think she brings pleasure when, in fact, she is poison. And if you read chapter 17 carefully, which I urge you to do, you'll see how she's dressed in purple, in fine linen. She's got all these attractive colors, and she's dressed seductively, and she holds a golden goblet, a golden cup in her hand. It's as though she's smiling to anyone who would come her way, and she's going, here, drink. This is everything you've been looking for. You know, you know all of that lack of satisfaction? Here, drink from this cup, and you'll have everything you've been missing out on. So you lift it to your lips, but you find out, as verse 5 says, that it's filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This prostitute operates by seducing the masses. She makes it look like what we really want, what we really need, she can provide. And so millions are duped. By the way, do you ever do that? Do you ever think that something is safe and cute and cuddly, but it turns out that it's very different. Gary Richmond is a former L.A. zookeeper, and he wrote an article called A View from the Zoo in which he tells about raccoons. He says that raccoons go through a massive glandular change at about 24 months, and after that, they're prone to attack. He reminds us that a raccoon at 30 pounds is more vicious than a 100-pound dog can be in a fight. So knowing that, Gary felt compelled to mention to a friend of his named Julie what was about to happen with her pet raccoon. Well, Julie listened politely as he explained the coming danger, and Gary says, I'll never forget her response. Here's what she said. It'll be different for me. She smiled and said, Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't do that. Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for Severe facial lacerations she sustained when her pet raccoon bandit attacked her for no apparent reason. Well, bandit was released into the wild, and she was released to go home and try to put her life back together again. And isn't that our story? We get so close to some aspect of the world, we think, this is harmless, it's fine. We get too close, and it 
bites us. That's what this whore of cultural seduction does. She lures us in, makes us think she's sweet and beautiful. She's holding a golden goblet. Oh, she smells so nice. But all she is is destruction and death. I hope you understand that you're in this story, and I hope you understand that you're being stalked by a dragon. When we talk about Antichrist, there are two ways to think about it. If you own a paint store and I want to put you out of business, I suppose there's two ways I can do it. One is I can come under the cloak of darkness and burn your store down. I'm against you. But if you've got a paint store and I want to put you out of business, I can do it a very different way. I can just open up another paint store across the street and just have all the latest stuff and make it seem so attractive And I may just eventually put you out of business. Folks, I'm telling you, we live in a world where all around us are seductive influences and they baa like a lamb, but they're really the dragon at their very roots. So John's message to us is, look, come out of this. Don't get seduced. Chapter 18, verse 4, he says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you'll not share in her sins, so that you'll not receive any of her plagues. So here's the message to the church. Do not be deceived by this prostitute of cultural seduction. So as we wrap up today, I want to put just one final word on this message as we wrap it up. I hope you remember the big, big lesson. The macro narrative here is that the dragon is defeated. But this meta narrative of which we're all a part has the most unlikely of endings. Here's what you would never expect from a story like this. You would never expect that the lamb defeats the dragon. That just doesn't happen. But it did happen. And it is happening. And if you're with the Lamb, Jesus, you get in on his victory. So here's my final word to you. I want to be as pointed and as personal I can be as we close. If you're not on the Lamb's team, your story doesn't have a good ending. If you're not on the Lamb's team, I want you to get this. Your story does not have a happy ending. And if you're with the Lamb right now and you know you're on his team, I want to tell you this. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a lot of ups and downs in this battle. Because there is a dragon who is stalking you and out to destroy you. But if you've put your trust in Jesus, you're going to overcome. Final verse, Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from that death. There's your ticket 
The blood of the Lamb, that's what Jesus has done for us. The word of their testimony, that's what Jesus is doing through us. Get on the Lamb's team. It's the only way to victory. God, I thank you for this very disturbing but very realistic passage. And I pray for everyone listening right now that each of us would realize we're in this story. This is not some theoretical thing about Christians long ago or Christians far away. It's about us. We're in this story, and we can't escape it. So help us not to be all depressed and down and melancholy about that. I pray that we would all go from this experience understanding that when we're on the Lamb's team, we're already a part of his victory. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.